It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined by political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Greg Bluestein, who has written the book, Flipped, on what happened in Georgia in 2020. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for playing that song because it'll be in my head all day and it's a good thing. <laughs> and that's yeah. just lovely, right? You're totally. welcome. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, so so Georgia was the story of the election um, in 2020, both for um, delivering the White House, being one of the states that delivered the White House and for delivering the Senate with a special election of Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Um, as somebody who is steeped in Georgia politics, my first question is, did you see this coming? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, and by the way, I think Georgia will remain that center of attention in 2022 for sure with all of the, the elections yeah. we have on the ballot. But I, I, I didn't think that exactly what happened would happen. I thought Georgia would be just as close as it was in 2018 because that was sort of the first wake-up call for everyone outside of Georgia that, hey, you know, Democrats actually have some momentum behind them. Stacey Abrams came really close to beating Brian Kemp in that 2018 election. So and, and as the book recounts, too, Republicans saw this coming, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were not kind of sleeping on this. They knew that Democrats had a lot of um, power and mojo behind them, in a sense, right? They had a lot of um, they had a lot of energy behind them. And uh, Stacey Abrams was that wake up call that a lot of Republicans were looking for to get reengaged as well. I mean, one of the things I think a lot about is like what everybody was talking about before the 2020, 2020 election, right? In terms of like, what were the battleground states to watch? When, what were the toss up states? And yes, they were talking about Georgia, but they were mostly talking about Texas. Um, yeah, we're just waiting yeah. for those demographics to say. And, um, <laughs> and, and I, I, would, I was sort of like screaming off to the side because I wrote a book in, that came out in July of 2020, so before the 2020 election, mm -hmm. that talked about Texas, sure, about Arizona, sure, but mainly about Georgia. And I actually spoke to Stacey Abrams um, in, you know, as part of the interviews for the book because Georgia, for me, even more so than Texas, was the one that made flip first because of the, the power of sort of black women and black the, the black vote in Georgia specifically in a way that is different from Texas or Arizona or some of these other places. Can you talk about the political organization that Stacey Abrams was able to build in that gubernatorial race we just re referenced that served the, the Democrats well two years later, right? Because it was an election that she was super close, as you said, but then there were a bunch of lawsuits. She started fair fight. Um, and so it was clear that like that result um, created sort of a, you know, a chain, a chain reaction in terms of like different things and steps that then sort of pushed Georgia over, over the top. But can you lay yeah. out what happened between that 2018 almost Democratic victory to um, and, and what happened immediately afterwards that sort of set up this trajectory? 
Yeah, Stacey Abrams liked to talk about Georgia as sort of like a cheap date. She was saying to <laughs> national donors and national and the, the Biden campaign that, hey, this isn't Texas. This isn't Ohio even, right? This isn't a state where you have to pump in a tremendous amount of resources. They already had, they already built up this grassroots, grassroots network in Georgia. And again, in 2018, she showed Democrats, she had a sort of proof point that, hey, you know, Georgia can be really competitive. Um, you know, it's not hard. To, it's, you don't have to go back far to look at Georgia where in 2014, Jason Carter, who was Jimmy Carter's grandson, he ran and lost Georgia by eight points. In 2010, the former governor, Roy Barnes, Democrat, ran and lost by about eight, eight nine points. Um, so Georgia wasn't really close. Stacey Abrams came within a point and a half. And then a famous non-concession speech, she announced she was launching Fair Fight Action, mm -hmm. which was her political organization. At first, it was more of a voting rights organization, but it's morphed into a, just this broad political organization that has Republicans to this day up at night. I mean, literally this morning, I wrote a story about this new Republican group that's, that was aimed at countering Stacey Abrams' fair fight. And she turned it into this behemoth, this juggernaut. It raised $100 million in about a year, right? This is from a candidate who, at the, at the beginning of her campaign, there was questions about whether or not she could raise the money to compete with, with Republicans because, you know, she was having a hard time raising a million, a million dollars. And now she's raising $100 million at the drop of a hat, it seems. I mean, it took a lot of work. <laughs> But she had this kind of ground game going um, that was mobilized at first around voting rights, but then expanded. And right now, its biggest issue and Stacey Abrams' biggest campaign issue revolves around expanding access to health care. It, it revolves around expanding Medicaid in Georgia, something that Governor Kemp and other Republicans have refused to do over the years, saying it would be too costly in the long run. Stacey Abrams has reason to believe this will be maybe the most single most important issue in Georgia this election cycle. So how are Republicans responding to this power shift? Um, like there, it, it was odd because in 2020, we saw a couple of Republicans sort of holding the democracy line. You know, the Secretary of State wouldn't send in bogus electoral mm -hmm. counts. You know, they, they held firm on that. Um, Donald Trump was real mad at them for what he perceived as like their unwillingness to, you know, break the law for him. Uh, is that still like, what, what lesson did they learn from all of that? Because I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, well, the lesson is still ongoing. Donald Trump is coming to Georgia on Saturday to campaign for seven candidates that he's endorsed, mostly against incumbents like Brian Kemp, like Secretary of State Raffensperger, who Trump believes didn't do enough to illegally reverse his election defeat. Um, and these are no, you know, obviously Raffensperger, Kemp, there are no heroes to many Democrats here in Georgia, even though they have a high profile, right. you know, for obvious reasons with Kemp. And with Raffensperger, he has attacked Stacey Abrams about as much as he's attacked Donald Trump. So Democrats here are kind of reminding voters, hey, you know, <laughs> we've got Democratic candidates you should support rather than supporting Raffensperger. Um, all this remains to be seen. It's the biggest question. I actually have a, a story in today's Atlanta Journal-Constitution. What is Donald Trump's endorsement worth now in Georgia? Mm. Because he has scattered it out so broadly. He's now endorsing candidates for insurance commissioner and attorney general who no one's ever heard of just because they're going against Kemp-backed incumbents, right? Just because they're going against allies of Governor Kemp. So um, when I talked about what keeps Republicans up at night, this is another thing. This Trump feuding um, going on in Georgia is at a probably it's Georgia might, might be 
Donald Trump's biggest test of his influence ahead of the 2024 election because he's endorsed so many candidates here. And um, many of them are fringe candidates who either no one's ever heard of, or in the case of this guy, Vernon Jones, Vernon Jones was a Democratic chief executive of Georgia's most important Democratic county um, for, for a long, long time. And he was a Democratic state lawmaker before he flipped parties and, and endorsed uh, Trump. So he is not exactly embraced by the party's base either in that, in that case. So one of the yeah. other the other things that um, I think a lot about is like it didn't just flip in the presidential election. There was a whole special. <laughs> um, and yeah. so that was not an inevitability. Right. I, I think that like we look at Senator Warnock and we look at Senator Ossoff, you know, um, you know Ossoff, who has been a part of these confirmation hearings all week. So mm-hmm. um, top of mind. Uh, but that was not an inevitability. Right. I think. The, even the presidential um, election flipping, um, that didn't that didn't necessarily indicate that the the state would flip from red to blue um, on those that Senate line. Can you talk a bit about the campaigns of Senator Warnock and um, Senator Ossoff and how maybe even how their campaigns for their Senate seats were like similar or different and how they navigated. Um, the terrain in Georgia, because I think, you know, once they sort of join together, at, you know, for that special, um, you know, that sort of like they did all the TikToks together and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it felt like a moment where like it was like, OK, George, like there is a new Georgia. Georgia didn't just flip in the presidential like this is like a moment we're having here. Um, talk a bit about them and how, um, you know, differently than even Stacey Abrams or Joe Biden. Um, on the presidential side of things, like how they navigated this new terrain in Georgia. By the way, on the TikTok point, there's this fun passage in the book where we reveal that John Ossoff really had no clue what TikTok was. He just relied on really smart staffers. <laughs> I love it. Because uh, he had been a staffer to Hank Johnson, a congressman, and Hank Johnson had let him you know, do blogs and things like that for the first time back in the mid 2000s. So John Ossoff said, I want to take a cue from my former boss. But um, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock formed a bromance. They formed this unique relationship. And Ossoff realized very early on, and what everyone in Georgia realized, the only way he could win was energizing black voters. There's been this sort of um, standard in Georgia that for a Democrat to win, they got to get to 30% white voters. They've got to win over 30% white voters. Um, But what that sort of ignored is is or that would sort of that took for granted was that black voters would would come out in droves and support whoever the Democrat was. And Stacey Abrams, Rafael Warnock, John Ossoff all knew that, no, it's not it's not effective just to be on the on the ballot. You've got to have give black voters the party's base in Georgia. Black voters are the the, the heart and soul of, of, of the Democratic electorate. You've got to give them a reason to come out and vote. And so um, you saw a very different John Ossoff in 2020 than you did in 2017 when he was running for Congress. Um, he was running in a suburban district for Congress, had a very moderate message, didn't want to go toe to toe with Donald Trump, didn't attack Trump by name, um, wouldn't say whether he would vote for Nancy Pelosi as the House Speaker, you know, kind of ran the um, the playbook campaign and lost by about a point and a half, got close but lost. In 2020, he embraced liberal progressive issues. Um, I think what you saw in the runoffs was candidates from both parties said, we're not going to go to the middle. There's no, there's no use trying to, trying to pick up any swing voters or moderate suburbanites or anything like that. They'll come, they'll fall wherever they fall. We've got to go to the base. And so you saw the entire runoff cycle, Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, 
um, working in tandem really too for a big part of it, uh, but going after the party's base and in John Ossoff's case in particular, because he knew as a 33 year old young white Jewish guy, um, it, 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 he's not a natural uh, beacon. He's not a natural, he's, it's not, it's not, it won't be as easy for him to be embraced by the African-American base. So just about every single one of his ads was targeting, was, was meant to appeal to black voters. And most of his campaign stops were in majority black areas um, in Georgia. What do you think states that, you know, like we always, we always get distracted by Texas. Texas is that meme of the, like the woman walking by and the girlfriend is like, why are you staring at her? And the girlfriend is Georgia. Like yes. what, uh, what, <laughs> what should states that we are constantly focused on in terms of like possible potential future demographic changes that would radically shift the electoral college? Like what should we be learning from Georgia to expedite that process in other places? I think the biggest thing is that Georgia's not some overnight success, right? And Democrats hope it's not some fluke either. But this wasn't something that just happened to happen because of Trump, right? Trump, Trump accelerated it. Trump helped fuel it. Trump made it easier for Democrats to win. And if, and if Democrats win in November, people will say the same thing. Oh, it's because of Trump infighting. But over the last decade, Democrats have built up this, this <clears throat> reservoir of candidates and um, of grassroots uh, 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 networks of voter organizations of issues, um, you know, Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and Mayor, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Nakima Williams, Lucy McBath, all these Democrats have become somewhat household names, at least the political junkies, and they've built networks of their own and issues. And we didn't have that in Georgia for a long time, right? We didn't have, um, we had a lot of Republicans, um, running for different offices and, 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 and who had visibility and high name recognition. But um, you had to build up a bench of Democrats uh, who also had issues to run on and that weren't being Republican light. I mean, not so long ago, Democrats in Georgia ran as NRA Democrats, right? <laughs> ran on very moderate issues that were not that hard to distinguish from a Republican platform. And Stacey Abrams showed in 2018 that, hey, you can get really close. You can get a lot of votes. You can get a record number of votes for a Democrat in Georgia by, by appealing to the authentic party core, appealing to progressive issues. So she made her campaign back then about criminal justice reform, about gun control, gun safety laws, um, about issues that, you know, that Democrats just did not talk about. And that now, now it's a mainstay of every campaign in Georgia. So the other thing I think about when I think about Georgia, unfortunately, now is like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that well, I, I think wanna. <laughs> I know, but I it's an important question. I know. I know. So for, for every sort of um, positive uh, proof or po positive data point we can look at and say, you know, this is a proof point that Georgia is moving just in a saner direction. Let's not even make it partisan, but just like in a, in a direction where everybody's participating we're counting out the votes the, the elections are close like and whoever wins wins that's sort of the ideal scenario here um but the marjorie taylor greens of the world um you know how does that happen maybe this is my question how does that happen in the same cycle as as all of these other proof data points that are showing that georgia's moving in a different direction maybe the answer is just like her district but yeah, and it's part of is it, there, right? Is gerrymandering more, more is part to of it. it. Yeah, I mean, gerrymandering is part of it. But just as I, we were talking about how Democrats, um, you know, played to their base, 
Republicans, they're not they're not aiming for the swing voter mm. at all. Right. I mean, it's, it's just not part of the calculus right now. Mm-hmm. It is trying to wring out as many votes as possible from white rural conservative areas and the exurbs of, of, of Atlanta, because the suburbs have flipped and they don't look like they're going to be flipping back anytime soon. And of course, the major cities in Atlanta have long been blue. So Republicans, the the the, the path to victory is wringing out as many of those voters as it can. And we saw that in 2018, um, you know, Brian Kemp went to counties that Donald Trump won with 86% of the vote, and he won them with 92% of the vote, right? So you, in some of these counties only had 3,000 voters. Georgia has 159 counties, so we have a way too many counties. But, uh, <laughs> but he, would, he would expand on Donald Trump's success in these, in these counties. Um, and you're going to see that same strategy. But with Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I talk about her a, a decent amount in the book because I met with her. She was first a candidate in, in the moderate suburbs of Atlanta, R- right around the corner from where I live. I sat down with her before she was Marjorie Taylor Greene, before anyone knew who she was at a little coffee shop. And she was going to challenge Karen Handel, the incumbent Republican Congress member from, from, from the district I live in um, as a sort of more conservative version of Karen Handel, but nothing, nothing that would kind of make your jaw drop. It was the standard fare. And, um, and then when this open seat, um, a seat in Northwest Georgia became open in a very, very conservative area. She just said, huh, I'm going to, I'm going to move there and run there. And far from being perceived as a carpetbagger, the voters there embraced her messages. Um, she had these very um, uh, fiery, uh, provocative radio ads that would run kind of nonstop in the, in the areas in Northwest Georgia, uh, talking about her hatred for feminism and, and bashing Hillary Clinton. Wow. It was just kind of this, this sort of, you know, greatest hits of all the Republican attack lines you see in on Fox News and in Newsmax and all the, the far right media. And it worked. And she beat a longtime a neurosurgeon who was not some, you know, moderate. He was running as a as a very, very conservative Republican um, who had deep roots in the community. Um, she easily defeated him in a runoff. And at that point, Republicans realized uh, we might have made this monster and we're going to have to stick with it. And she is speaking at the Donald Trump rally this weekend. So as much as Herschel Walker and some of the other candidates have tried to kind of keep her at arm's length, there's no way to anymore. And Democrats are going to try to make her the face of their GOP in, in 2022. As they should. Greg Bluestein, the book is flipped. Thank you so much for joining us. This is just a fascinating story. And like the more layers you peel back, the more interesting it gets. So we really appreciate your your reporting all through it and, and the book. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank Anytime. You so we are always happy to talk Georgia and it gives us an excuse to play that song. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.